Hello, and welcome to the Clinical Care Options Oncology Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Quill. Today's episode features a discussion of recently reported findings with the potential to impact the treatment of patients with chronic lymphocytic leukemia, or CLL. This episode is part of a larger educational program entitled Global Conference Coverage, Clinical Impact of New Data in B-Cell Malignancies from ASCO and EHA 2020. During this podcast, Dr. Jennifer Brown from the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston and Dr. John Allen from Weill Cornell Medicine in New York will discuss new extended follow-up data from key studies of the calibrutinib monotherapy, including the ASCEND trial, as well as new data from the CLL-14 trial of combination therapy with venetoclax plus obinutuzumab, and how they are using these regimens for patients with CLL in their practices. In addition, they will discuss new data looking at the potential to improve outcomes for patients with CLL by combining BTK inhibitors and venetoclax. For more information on Dr. Brown and Dr. Allen, along with a link to the complete program, including a downloadable slide set, please visit the show notes for this episode. Now let's get started and hear what the experts have to say on this important topic. The first trial we'll be discussing today is the ASCEND trial. We saw the final results of the ASCEND trial at the spring meetings. This trial was a randomized phase three trial comparing a calibrutinib to investigator choice of adelalisib rituximab or bendamustine rituximab in relapsed CLL patients. So patients needed to have at least one prior therapy. And the primary endpoint was progression-free survival for the IRC with an interim analysis planned after about 79 events. The study met its primary endpoint with a significant improvement in progression-free survival with the calibrutinib with a hazard ratio of 0.27. The median PFS was not reached in the calibrutinib arm, but was estimated at 82% at 18 months, whereas the PFS for adelosibrituximab-BR combined was 16.8 months. Both of those two arms were pretty comparable in terms of the individual PFS as well. With the calibrutinib, no difference was seen by 17P or P53 mutation status, but in the control arm, there was a apparent difference based on the presence of the mutations. IGBH looked pretty comparable in each arm. Adverse events were, as are well known for calibrutinib, with headache being the most common adverse event. Hemorrhage was increased, but major hemorrhage was similar in the two arms. Atrial fibrillation was pretty limited with nine cases in the calibrutinib versus five in the control arm. Hypertension was also equivalent. So, John, what do you think? Is this changing your practice? Yeah. So, I mean, I was going to kind of maybe even ask you the same thing. So basically, you know, um, my big takeaways from this is, is essentially this was uh, one of the first times we've actually seen uh, some of these targeted agents go head to head, frankly. Um, you know, there are some head to head BTK inhibitor studies, uh, but this is really the first time that we've had uh, two, two drugs reported uh, and, you know, at least at this time when it was initially reported uh, in the B-cell receptor pathway. And so, 
Um, obviously, it doesn't really change our practice. I think it confirms a lot of things that we all knew, and I think that's why, obviously, we still, you know, do these uh, these studies is because you, you have to, you know, potentially definitively prove one thing uh, one way or the other. And so I think uh, none of this was too shocking to anybody in the field uh, that's that's used uh, BTK inhibitors, that's used uh, PI3 kinase inhibitors, because I really look at this study as a uh, BTK inhibitor stu- uh, versus a, a, a PI3 kinase inhibitor study, um, since it was 80% of the patients got the Idella uh, in that arm. And so, you know, nothing, nothing too surprising in terms of the efficacy. It seemed consistent. It seemed uh, consistent with the historical uh, outcomes as well that we know with idelalisib. Uh, also very consistent with what we knew about the toxicities of the two drugs. And, you know, it's kind of nice to see uh, the, the low rates of uh, atrial fibrillation and, and some of these discontinuation rates uh, uh, in the BTK acalabrutinib arm specifically versus uh, kind of what we know about idelalisib. So I think for me, again, it just kind of um, convincingly relegates PI3 kinase use to later on in, in, in my practice for, for my patients. Um, you, you, you have a patient for it every now and then that might have some issues with a BCL2 inhibitor approach or, or even with a BTK inhibitor approach for whatever reason. But, uh, you know, this kind of solidified it for me. And, and um, while it's nice to see the, the, the data reported out, uh, it's not necessarily impacting how I'm, how I'm managing patients too much. It's, it's, I was kind of already anticipating these results. Mm. It's true. The Adela arm did not have as long a time on therapy as we saw in some of the Adelacid registration trials, but the PFS was not really much reduced from what we saw in those trials. And the discontinuation rate for adverse events was about 50%. Mm-hmm. So I think that it's still toxicity that's driving a lot of what we saw here with the right. PI3 kinase inhibitors. Patients who stay on them without toxicity can do well, but that's not most of the patients, unfortunately. Right, right. Absolutely. So we also saw a report of the long-term efficacy of a calibrutinib in treatment-naive CLL, SLL. This is a phase two study that enrolled 99 patients with a median age of 64 10% with deletion 17P and 62% with unmutated IGVH, which is about what we expect to see in an untreated first-line patient population. The median follow-up is now 53 months, and duration of response is 97%. But what I've found particularly striking is that the 48-month event-free survival is 90%. This includes people who stopped the drug for adverse events, as well as any other reason. And so 90% of patients were still on the drug, still doing well, four years into therapy, which is something that we don't see so much with the brutinib, where there is a higher rate of discontinuation for adverse events. We also had some longer-term safety data, albeit without a comparator arm. Headache, again, is prominent. Diarrhea, although it is tends to be low-grade. Arthralgias and bruises are also common, but again, low-grade. Cardiac events were pretty limited. There were five cases of atrial fibrillation, four major hemorrhages. 22 patients did develop hypertension, and this will be something that we need to watch as we continue to give a calibrutinib over even longer times. There were also a number of second primary malignancies, which is 
another feature that's emerging from a number of the trials of targeted agents, which I think probably reflects the underlying disease, but we need to continue to follow the randomized trial data to really sort that out. Uh, you know, I, I agree with you that uh, uh, the most impressive thing was this event-free survival out, out four years. And, um, you know, that's the, one of the things that was a little, was, you know, a nice thing about ibrutinib is that we know kind of what we're going to get very far out in the future. And until this study kind of reported, we didn't really know what that looked like you know, in a comparable amount of time that that's been reported for ibrutinib. And so, you know, they've reported out five years. Uh, this reports out close to over four years. And, um, you know, it is striking to see the, the percentage of patients that uh, have not had an event, which included the discontinuation progression or death. Um, whereas obviously the 70% 70, 70 progression-free survival rate uh, with with ibrutinib is in the 70% range at that year five mark. And so that's incorporating a lot of these discontinuations already. And uh, so I think you can you can still, you know, you can see this the safety and tolerability potential difference here. And I think that's a that's a striking feature of this study. Uh, and we see that in, in terms of the AFib rate relatively low. Um, you know, there are still toxicities that are similar and are class effects, but uh, it always seems a little bit less with, with this drug as, as you start to follow the long-term follow-up. And I think um, this study also showed that with time, um, the toxicities that were noted uh, uh, were, were decreasing over time as well, seem, seemingly. So it kind of self-selects the people who get out that far, tolerate it. But uh, it's a similar phenomenon that we do see also with uh, ibrutinib and other BTK inhibitors. So it may be a, a class effect that the longer you're on these drugs, the better tolerable they come. Uh, you brought up this second primary malignancy. So there was, I was going to almost ask you about that in the ASCEND trial. While it wasn't a major difference uh, in the ASCEND trial, it was like 5% versus like 2%. And, I, and I, you know, how real is that and kind of what is that? Um, you know, obviously, these are relapse refractory patients. And so, um, uh, you know, as you said, it could be a manifestation of disease and prior therapies and things like that. So I think uh, it's also important point to note out uh, to, to look for that. Um, uh, to, as some of these phase three clinical trials continue to, to mature, uh, that are head-to-head -head studies with Acala versus Ibrutinib. We also saw updated results from the CLL14 trial of venetoclaxabinituzumab as compared to chlorambucilabinituzumab in previously untreated CLL from the German CLL study group. This study was for patients with coexisting medical conditions, so they had to have an elevated comorbidity score above six or reduced creatinine clearance. 432 such patients were enrolled and randomized between venetoclaxabinituzumab and chlorambucilabinituzumab. The abinituzumab was given for the first three weeks prior to initiation of the venetoclax ramp-up, and primary endpoint was progression-free survival per investigator. The median observation time is up to almost 40 months, and the three-year progression-free survival is 82% in venetoclaxabinituzumab compared to 49.5% in chlorambucilabinituzumab, which is obviously highly statistically significant. The difference is preserved in patients with 17P and P53 mutation, although those patients do have a worse outcome on venetoclaxabinituzumab compared to the patients who do not have P53 deletion or mutation. So 
it's been very interesting to follow the rates of MRD on this trial. In particular, trial is one year of time-limited therapy, and we are expect that rates of undetectable MRD will correlate with progression-free survival. And so at the end of the one year of therapy, about 75% of patients on the venetoclaxib and atuzumab arm had achieved undetectable MRD in peripheral blood. Now with 18-month follow-up, it's at about 47%, which is not surprising since MRD starts to recur given that therapy was stopped at the end of one year. The rate of conversion from undetectable MRD to MRD positivity was higher in patients with P53 aberrations, complex karyotype, and a high CLL-IPI risk. In terms of safety, there, the main new signal was actually with secondary malignancies, where there was an increase in solid tumors, mostly adenocarcinomas, in the venetoclaxibinituzumab arm compared to the chlorambicillabinituzumab arm. And it, it's hard, I think, at this point to know what to make of this, but it is definitely noticeable. And so will continue to need to be followed, especially in the randomized trial data. Now, my main takeaway from some of these data was a concern about how the P5317P deleted patients were doing. John, what did you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I think this study in general was exciting for a lot of people and, and uh, kind of changed um, practice for, for many people and, and, and feeling comfortable at least offering uh, fixed duration to the majority of patients. Um, I think that's important for patients, and I think most kind of want to be off of, of off of treatment. And I think this is the uh, the question that we're all trying to figure out is which approach is best for a patient. You know, a continual therapy with a BTKI, uh, whereas if you can stay on it, you'll probably do really well long term. Uh, versus a fixed duration, and and uh, is there a p perfect patient for that? And I think with this study, and you highlighted it uh, a little bit, is is we're starting to learn now maybe that stopping therapy and these really high-risk patients uh, is maybe not the best approach and and they seem to be relapsing uh, as soon as you stop them on their therapy and so I think um, you know that brings up a couple different questions one we don't know if fixed duration is is com completely the best approach. We, we don't know if continuation on venetoclax could have kept these, these similar patients that, that relapsed in, in a MRD negative remission or if they would have been bound to relapse anyway um, and or if this is just not the approach for them. So I think, um, you know, I, I, I guess, how do you approach your 17P deleted patients? Are you even offering them this, Jen? Or are you saying... Uh, we need more data. We need to understand better before you have one of these high-risk patients to talk about a fixed duration with them. Right. So in general, I really like this regimen, and I'm using it for a lot of patients in my practice. But given that the PFS is down to 60% at three years and the 17 P-deleted patients, I have been not using it in that subgroup. I, you know, it's a limited number of patients. And we still also don't know how many of those patients achieved undetectable MRD 
and then relapsed anyway versus mm -hmm. ones who never achieved undetectable MRD because that's something we can monitor and use as a potential decision point for stopping potentially. Mm -hmm. So, but there are a lot of unanswered questions at the moment for that group. And I think there's a concern that stopping therapy may not be the best for them. Although we don't have any frontline continuous therapy venetoclax data in that group. Yeah. Do you think, you know, since when you look at kind of the subgroups, um, it seems that the 17P deleted and complex karyotype high CLL IPI patients get to MRD negativity as much as everyone else, but clearly they seem to relapse. So I guess uh, my question, and I don't know if you know or you may know, uh, but do you think that's due to the depth of the remission or do you think that's due to this complex underlying biology that that cell is just inherently kind of cycling a little bit faster and no matter how deep you get, uh, because it's cycling faster, it comes back faster type situation? Or do you think it's just that they're not getting quite as deep and therefore you release the, the pressure and all of a sudden it just can come back faster versus uh, a, a patient with a deeper MRD negativity? I think it's probably both actually, that fewer are getting the depth of remission, but then that the biology still causes the relapse to be sooner. And, you know, I think what'll be interesting as we get longer and longer follow-up on this study is to see if we essentially see the same thing we saw after chemoimmunotherapy with other high-risk groups like deletion 11Q and even unmutated IGVH, right? So 17P relapsed first after FCR, 11Q had very high response rates, then still relapsed more quickly than other unmutated IGVH. And then obviously unmutated IGVH patients relapse continuously compared to mutated patients who have a plateau and may even be cured. And so I wonder if we'll end up mimicking that pattern as we get longer follow-up, hopefully with a longer duration of remission, but we don't know. Right. And I guess the question comes like, how good of a remission is good enough to stop therapy? You know, for let's say if if unmutated patients do relapse sooner, how how long are we going to be happy with for them to be in remission and off of drug to say that that fixed duration approach is is not acceptable? Um, and I think those are that's a little unknown. Right. Although right now the rate, the PFS rate in the undetectable MRD patients is still really good, right? right. So right. hopefully it'll end up being sufficient years that even when they do relapse, that it feels like it was worthwhile to give them time-limited therapy. For sure. So we also had an update from the Clarity Phase two trial of Ibrutinib and Venetoclax and relapsed refractory CLL from the UK <clears throat> study group. And this trial had a two-month lead-in with Ibrutinib prior to venetoclax ramp-up with a primary endpoint of MRD eradication in bone marrow after 12 months of therapy. It also had an interesting design in that the duration of therapy was based on the timing of achieving undetectable MRD. So patients were planned to stop based on when they became undetectable MRG. So if that happened in eight months, they'd stop at 14 months. If it didn't happen to 14 months, they'd stop at 26 months. And then they 
actually extended the therapy for another year out to 36 months based on the fact that they were observing still deepening responses in some patients over that second year of therapy. So safety in this study looked pretty good. There was a 5% rate of atrial fibrillation, as expected bleeding, bruising, hemorrhage events in any study with abrutinib. The rate of febrile neutropenia was 2%, although a 13% rate of neutropenia was seen, which is actually not bad for a combination of abrutinib and venetoclax. So after 12 months of the combination treatment, 58 patients had achieved undetectable MRD in peripheral blood and 40% in marrow. Remember, these are relapsed patients, and so that's why the rates are lower than what we've heard for frontline studies. There was a steady improvement in the depth of remission from year one to two, but as it turned out, in the extra year of therapy, there was no further deepening of remission. I think the most interesting finding that they reported here was that patients who had a greater than two log depletion of their disease burden within the first two months of combination were much more likely to achieve undetectable MRD than those who had a much lower rate of depletion of their disease. And this makes sense. I think this is something that we'd observe even in the era of chemoimmunotherapy, that the rapidity of drop of the white count seemed to correlate with ultimately the depth of remission. But it hasn't been quantified in quite this way before. And that may be able to be used for us to get a better idea of how to guide therapy by MRD eventually. John, do you think we'll ever be guiding therapy by MRD? Um, yeah, I, I do. I think um, I think it's going to be uh, important to figure out how uh, how these combinations come about and and how we can learn uh, where where the maximum depth of of response will be. Um, I, I think it definitely will make a lot of us comfortable when you're MRD negative, because uh, we have now study after study showing that if you can achieve that endpoint, your progression-free survival is going to be better than someone who's who's unable to do that. So I think uh, guiding treatment based on MRD will be important if we're thinking about fixed durations. If, if, you're, if you're thinking about continual therapy, I don't know if it matters so much, honestly, um, but obviously that, that's a very important uh, question. And, and I think uh, this study was exciting to see kind of asking this question and uh, based on on the kinetics of MRD negativity and and how long of therapy do you need and then expanding it because the other question is because we stop patients and we don't really know if we can continue them on for even further treatment can they continue to deepen over time and I think you know that these are this study kind of packed in a lot of, of, of thoughts in the field and, and is providing a lot of information for us. Um, now, obviously, this is in a relapse refractory kind of patient group. And so uh, how do you extrapolate that to a, to a frontline patient, uh, patient group? And do they, are they, do they behave a little bit differently? But I think, um, you know, I think the MRD um, decision tree will be relevant to how we manage patients in the future. But I do think uh, it needs to be simple. 
this 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 study design is complex. You have to be paying attention to the dates that you get your MRD, and then calculating how much further you need to do it. And so, you know, for for a practicing clinician and practic practically speaking, um, it'd be nice to say where does it plateau, and let's treat kind of people uniformly uh, for the most part and kind of you can if if the data does show that if you can get to MRD early um, then you can stop but that let that be nuanced rather than more of the rule of how you manage someone so but but I agree I, I think MRD is important uh, especially in fixed durations and so I think it'll be exciting to see how these extrapolate to frontline um, uh, studies and and um, you know where we go into the future and whether or not combo therapy is is for everyone and everyone's a fixed duration and or as we were bringing up earlier is there a, a patient population that uh, there will never be an appropriate time to kind of stop them um, you know these 17p complex carry type patients where you know continual pressure with a BTK inhibitor may be necessary for them to to have them have relatively similar outcomes long term. Right, and on that note. We did see data from a German CLL Give study, which looked at a brutinib venetoclax and abinutuzumab specifically in a deletion 17p population. The data are still early, but I think that will likely be a very informative study for that population in terms of achieving very deep responses and finding out if we really can or cannot stop those patients. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So, on that note, we also heard a report on xanabrutinib, abinutuzumab, and venetoclax in untreated CLL, so a triple drug regimen and now a frontline setting using a second-generation BTK inhibitor, which is much more specific for BTK than abrutinib, so in principle should be better tolerated. And this study is a phase two study in which, in fact, the primary endpoint is the frequency of undetectable MRD. So patients start xanabrutinib and obinutuzumab together, and then their venetoclax starts at cycle three. Safety was generally as you might expect. There was a 15% rate of grade three neutropenia, which is not surprising for triple drug regimen. It's likely increased not just by venetoclax, but also by obinutuzumab. Otherwise, as we would expect. So the rate of undetectable MRD reached 77% at eight months, which was really quite impressive. Median follow-up overall was 11 months, and the median time to achieve undetectable MRD in the bone marrow was six months. And so as 62% reached the primary endpoint in marrow, they were able to discontinue their treatment at a median of eight months. Responses are very high. At best response, overall response was 100%. And at time of treatment discontinuation, the complete remission rate was 57%. I think we're going to have a lot of trouble judging various phase two studies of two and three drug regimens, BTK and BCL2 versus BTK, BCL2 and antibody. It would be nice if we had a good randomized trial powered to evaluate the addition of the antibody, but I'm not sure we're going to get that. John, what do you think? Does the anti-CD20 add anything? Yeah, I mean, I, I uh, based on kind of the the studies that have been reported, it doesn't it doesn't seem to in terms of MRD negativity. You know, I think these are 
the targeted agents are definitely the heavy lifters in in this uh, in this regimen in these regimens, and that you know will six months of anti CD twenty, uh, which is how most of them are employed, have any real impact on on long term outcomes? And and if it does, it will it will come from you know the the amount of patients that you can convert to an MRD negative state by addition of that anti CD twenty. And I I just don't know if it's going to be be able to do enough to have really any true impact on long-term outcomes, whereas all the all the response is really due to the synergy between the, BC, you know, the venetoclax and the BTK inhibitor. So I'm skeptical a little bit. Uh, you know, I do think it complicates the, the, the regimen. Uh, it adds some toxicities, you know, cytopenias and infusion reactions and the fact that the patients have to, to come in. Um, it does help to bulk a little bit, that's for sure. You know, it gets rid of the white count and, and makes uh, ramp up a little bit easier and potentially safer. Uh, so from that standpoint, it makes some sense. But, you know, there's also some question on um, BTK inhibitors uh, and their potential impact on anti-CD20 um, uh, efficacy and mechanisms of action. And I think as we get these, you know, more selective agents, I think that question and, and that fear is a little bit less. But it, it does modulate... Um, you know, CD20 expression and, and, and some of these other things potentially. And so, I, I, you know, I think there could be some um, use, but I, I'm still skeptical that it will have real long-term impacts on, on the outcomes that we are most uh, concerned about. It, it's hard to say. CD20s were the first drug that added overall survival benefit, and I feel like they need to still have a place in CLL, although I agree with the fact that we haven't really seen a clear difference in terms of undetectable MRD in the studies to date versus three drugs, and there is increased toxicity for sure, especially neutropenia and infusion reactions. So to summarize our CLL discussion, extended follow-up data demonstrate that calibrutinib is efficacious with no new long-term safety signals in patients with both untreated and previously treated CLL, including those with high-risk characteristics. Updated data from CLL-14 on initial therapy with venetoclax and venetuzumab show an increased incidence of other neoplasms on this recent update, but continue to show high rates of undetectable MRD and good PFS compared with clarambosil and venetuzumab. Patients with P53 aberrations and 17P deletion or complex karyotype are at higher risk for MRD relapse. And then new combination strategies, particularly BTK, BCL2, and the potential for an MRD-guided treatment approach look promising in early studies, but additional studies will clearly need be needed to evaluate how they compare to current treatments. Thank you very much, Dr. Brown and Dr. Allen. And thanks to you, the listeners, for joining us. As a reminder, to view the full program, global conference coverage, clinical impact of new data in B-cell malignancies from ASCO and EHA 2020, and to download the slide set associated with this discussion from the Clinical Care Options website, please click on the link in the show notes. As always, thanks for listening.